Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This is an amazing text. Uh, the Gospel of John just keeps getting better and better. I mean, it, it's hard to say that because it starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that was an amazing time in that passage. But it seems like, as we've been studying this Gospel, it seems like just the right text, at just the right moment, and only the way that God can do fits our church. We were preaching through John 9 when uh, Tyler was found out to have been born with a heart defect. And many would say, who sinned, Tyler or his parents, that he would be born this way? And we were able to emphatically say, it's neither this man nor his parents. God did it so that the glory of God would be seen. We come to another passage that's very similar to that. And this passage, once again, offers us a divine perspective. Instead of a human perspective, there's a human element in here, but this is divine perspective. Perspective is everything. Um, There's amazing art out there. I don't know if you've seen it on Facebook or Instagram. We even have some of these kinds of pieces of art in our own um, city that depend on your perspective. You guys drive down Nordoff and you see CSUN. It was uh, that, that... little artistic, artsy, uh, I don't even know what you call it, like a couple, four little letters there. Um, They are designed to be seen from every perspective, from every vantage point as saying CSUN. It's a pretty cool uh, kind of little artsy way of doing that. But it matters on your perspective. The the memorial to uh, Iwo Jima, that was specifically designed, I'll never forget, in eighth grade, going and seeing that it's specifically designed that if you go around it, if you walk around it, or if you drive around it, it, it was made in such a way that it looks as if a flag is being raised as you're going around it. Um, there are some amazing um, pieces of artwork that have, they're, they're hanging pieces of something. Something's hanging, and if you look at it from the side, it, it just looks like a bunch of pieces that are hanging, but if you go around to the front, in the depth of what you're seeing, it makes, it forms a beautiful image, but it depends on perspective. The same thing is true with our lives. It depends on your perspective, whether or not you see something as beautiful and glorious or whether or not you see it as horrific. We kind of see Mary and Martha's perspective a little bit. We'll see it more next week. But what Jesus is going to do this morning for us is give us God's perspective. It's the the top down instead of the ground up. These verses are familiar to us, but we need to read them again as if we're hearing them for the first time. We need to see them, we need to savor them, and we need to let God do a work in our hearts because he's going to teach us amazing things this morning about himself, about us, and about his good, loving purposes in the midst of our pain. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, 
Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Father, please open our eyes to behold amazing things. Let us see your Son. May your Spirit give us the gift of illumination. Grant to us understanding. Open our eyes to behold Jesus and to see from a divine perspective what is going on. Give courage to our hearts. May we understand the love that you have for us in a greater way this morning because of our time in your word. We pray it in your name. Amen. John 11, verses 1 through 16. We're going to look at this as one unit, one whole piece. There's many ways that you can divide this up to outline it. But what I want to do this morning is I just want to let the text preach. Um, We could outline it in a number of different forms, but there's really two main pieces of uh, glorious information that we need to pull from these verses. Two main truths that will impact the way that you live your life, the way that you feel. And we'll see those two main truths as we go through. So let's just start in verse 1 and let's let this text cascade over our souls. It's familiar to many of you, if not all of you. But let's let it hit us again as if it's the very first time that we've read it. Only John is going to record this event of the raising of Lazarus. And he starts in verse 1 by saying, a certain man was sick. Now, a certain man being sick, you might think it's a stranger. And that's why Jesus is going to say it's Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it's the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So he gives us a context as to who Lazarus is. Lazarus, the name is a shortened form of Eleazar, who is the third son and successor of Aaron. Um, The the name means whom God helps. It's a perfect name for what's happening here. God is going to richly help Lazarus. Um, Martha, you know Martha from Luke chapter 10, um, serving, always busy serving. That's why, by the way, we think that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus of those three, Martha's probably the oldest because she is the one who puts on the banquet. She's the one who is is serving and working. She's the one um, who is going uh, to be hostess in Luke chapter 10. And you remember that passage. Mary is sitting and, and um, enjoying, delighting at the feet of Jesus. And Mary turns to Martha. And what does he say? Remember, Martha, Martha, you've taken the lesser over the, the better. It's always bad when you hear your name said twice, right? Martha, Martha. The, nothing good ever comes after that. For me and my kids, 
The first one, the, the first name, if I say it's typically at my household, Ethan, Ethan, um, you know, Ethan, you know, it's typically him. Um, it's it, Ethan is typically the 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 first time I say it, it's kind of a get his attention, grab his attention, stop doing what you're doing. And then the second one is just a I can't believe you just did what you did. Right. So it's like, Ethan, Ethan, like, what are you doing? I don't know if that's how Jesus responds to Martha, but we've met Martha before in Luke. We know that John was written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John is banking on the fact that his readers have already learned of Jesus' relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That's why in verse 2, he describes the account of Mary anointing the Lord with the ointment, with the perfume. You remember that account. We're going to come to that account in chapter 12, but he speaks as if it's been done in the past. There's a couple reasons for that. Number one, again, he believes that you've already read the account of Mary. He knows that that account has been circulating and you probably already know about it. But the reason why he includes it here is because he wants us to know Jesus is not just uh, dealing with strangers. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are not nobodies. In fact, Bethany, we know from the Synoptic Gospels, Bethany is a a place where Jesus loved to, to be. There were parties that were held there. He spent the night there. It was an amazing location. And so Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live in Bethany, and they love the Savior. So, verse 3, the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Behold, so that's please listen. They're, they're saying something urgently. This isn't just, hey, Lazarus has a little bit of a fever. This is behold, listen. There's something very bad happening and Lazarus is sick unto death. You need to help. But notice they don't give an invitation. They don't give a request. They just simply say, Lazarus is sick. There's no, so please come. There's no, you need to help. Why didn't they say that? I think it's because they assumed that as soon as the Lord heard of the situation, he would rush and hurry to be there. They knew that Jesus loved Lazarus. They knew that Jesus loved Mary and Martha. They knew that. And so since they had experienced his power and his compassion, they figure if we just tell him Lazarus is sick, he'll come. He'll come. Verse 4. But... Despite what you think would happen, when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. This is a strange statement because you and I know that Lazarus is going to die. So what does Jesus mean? The the question here that Jesus is answering, there's no question, but the question that he's answering here is, what is the purpose of this illness? And Jesus is saying the end, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal is not death. Death is not going to win ultimately. The illness is not ultimately to take his life. The illness is ultimately to show and display the glory of God. Jesus does not mean here that the sickness isn't fatal. That's not what he's saying. He knows that it is fatal, but he means that it won't end with fatality. Not for Lazarus, and by the way, as we'll see next week, not for us. Our sickness, our illness that will lead to our physical death will not lead and end ultimately in death. 
So Jesus says, this is for the glory of God, that the Son of Man, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. This is the first um, glorious kernel of truth in this passage. So I'm, just, I'm going to give you two. Here's the first one. God purposes that his glory be seen in the midst of pain. God purposes that his glory be seen in the midst of pain. So he says, Lazarus is sick, he's going to die, but the ultimate end isn't death. The ultimate end is glory. Very similar to the words that are seen in John 9 of the man born blind. This, this illness, this sickness isn't for ultimately his pain. It's for the glory of God to be seen, even though he's going through a trying time. Now, what Jesus has just said can absolutely be interpreted callously. Well, he's not going to die. He's going to be fine and... The glory of God will be seen. Or, knowing what we know about Lazarus, he's going to die, but it doesn't matter that he dies because the glory of God will be seen. Well, no, it does matter. He's a friend. He's a, a brother. So it could be interpreted callously. That's why I believe John writes, verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's three times. Three times in five short verses, John has made mention of the fact that these four people are united in love. If you go back to verse 2, why did John include Mary anointing Jesus' feet? Because Jesus is dealing with people who are friends, and not just friends, an intimate involvement. This is a precious relationship. You don't just typically do this. Like at Bible study, when, when we have Bible study on Wednesday night, Ben Ditzel doesn't show up and say, hey, by the way, I brought some cologne. Uh, Patrick, I'd just like to anoint your head with the cologne. That's not a typical happening. If he really wants to show his love for me, it's typically in like a Chipotle gift card or something like that. And that's it. But it's like, here you go, bro. That's it. We're done. This is a deep, affectionate relationship. So point number one that uh, John is making for us in verse two is, Mary, Martha, Jesus, Lazarus, theirs is a relationship of deep, intimate love. They love each other, great affections. Verse 3, the second time John mentions it, Behold, he whom you love is sick. There's no question. They love each other. And then verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You need to have an understanding of the love that Jesus has because what he's about to do, if we can be honest, does not look like love. It doesn't look like love. It doesn't feel like love. I think that's why John's writing what he's writing because what he's about to say doesn't look or feel like love, but he's trying to let us know it is love. So you need to change your understanding of what true love is because what Jesus is about to do is love, even though it doesn't look or feel like love. Jesus loved, verse 5, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, verse 6, some of your Bibles might say, therefore, if your Bible just says, when he heard, in verse 6, number one, you need to write in verse 6 at the beginning, so or therefore, or number two, just get a different translation. Um, so, when he heard that he was sick, he loved these three people, so he did something. That so is crucial in the Greek. Because of his love for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, he is going to do something. And what is he going to do? Because of his love, verse 6, he heard that he was sick and he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And you could put in parentheses and let Lazarus die. 
because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he let Lazarus die. Now, if you don't enjoy, which none of us really do, living in the midst of loss and depression and despair, I think you're you're going to instantly run to, yeah, but he knows he's going to heal him. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead. Let's get out of there. We don't want to have a dark cloud of gloom over our head. So he's going to raise him. You could even go biblically to John chapter 6, verse 6, where Jesus, before the feeding of the 5,000 happens, he says, I myself know what I'm going to do. And Jesus himself knew what he was going to do here. But if you just instantly go to, well, Jesus is going to raise him in four days, so it's no big deal. Can, can I, we just need to stop, pause? If you're thinking, no big deal, he let Lazarus die, he's going to raise in four days, it's okay. Two, two things that would help you. Number one, death is never, ever, ever an easy thing. Ever. Even for believers. That's why 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, we grieve with hope. When a loved one around us, even a believer, passes away, we still grieve. Death is never an easy thing. Just put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Martha. This is incredibly difficult for them to go through. Number two, John intends to help to let us see from this account uh, our resurrection. It's not just all about Lazarus. Jesus is going to make a point. It's about our resurrection too. So if you just say, no big deal, then you miss the big deal about your resurrection and my resurrection, our resurrection together. In verses 23 through 26. So, Jesus says, I love you. I love you, and I'm going to let Lazarus die because I love you. Circle that word so in your Bible, because I love you. So we have to ask, I think John wants us to ask, how in the world is that loving? How in the world is this loving? I think it's loving because... His death will help them see the glory of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Love lets Lazarus die so that his death will help everyone, including us today, see the glory of God. Can we just pause and say, thank you, Martha and Mary, for going through a horrible four days on our behalf that we could see the glory of God. They went through a horrible four days. This is what Jesus, in essence, is saying. I'm going to put the glory of God on maximal display at great cost to Lazarus and his family. It's a cost that most people in this world are not willing to pay. I'm going to to show the glory of God, and it will cost them something to show the glory of God. But that's love. Most people would terminate on the cost and they would say, that's not loving. You have taken something. It cost them something. So therefore, it's not loving. Love is to give and to grant and to be permissive, not biblically. Biblical love says, I know Lazarus is mortally sick and I could come heal him, but I'm not going to because I love you. In his dying, I'm going to get great glory. My father is going to be seen as mighty over death. And I'm going to let you pass through a horrible experience. So that you can see the glory of God. You can see the glory of God. True biblical love is giving us what we need the most. And we need to say emphatically today what we need the most is to see the glory of God on display. That's what we need the most. So whenever Jesus gives us that, at whatever cost it is to us, it is loving. 
It was not a lack of love that made Jesus stay where he was in another city called Bethany. It was Bethany beyond the Jordan. It was about a day's journey. It's just the opposite. It is because of Jesus' great love for them. This is great love, and it's because of his great love that he stayed in Bethany and let Lazarus die. Notice in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha. That word love in the Greek, you know it, agape love. This is deep, unconditional, unbreakable. This is the highest form of love. Verse 3, the sisters send word and they say, Lord, behold, he whom you love. That's phileo, physical. You're in a relationship in a temporal time and space, a brotherly affection. They knew that Jesus cared for and loved as a brother loves another brother. They didn't even know how deep the love that Jesus had for Lazarus ran. So, John is stressing this love, and it needs to be stressed because I don't think there's anybody in the world that would say, oh, it's a loving thing to put somebody through a difficult time. It needs to be stressed. And I just want to say this morning, if you can see the love of God in the midst of your trial and suffering and pain, if you can see that that is love, if you can fight through the world's definition and if you can fight through your own heart's expectation and see that God putting you through great cost to yourself to show you the glory of God is the most loving. If you see that this morning, you see something supernatural. Natural people can't see that. So if you can see that, there's an evidence of grace happening in your heart. Something God is at work in your heart to be able to see that and to trust that and to believe that. So, in this account, number one, God is purposing that his glory be seen in the midst of your pain. That's the purpose. Remember, it's not about causes, John 9. What caused this man's illness or this man's blindness? It's not about cause, it's about purpose. Same thing here. What caused Lazarus' sickness? It's not about cause, it's about purpose. And God is purposing that something amazing happen, namely that his glory be seen. And that leads us to number two, God's purposing that his glory be seen in the midst of your pain is the greatest act of love possible. God revealing his glory to you is the greatest act of love that there is. At whatever cost that it might be to you, it is the greatest act of love that there is. So God purposes in your pain to show you his glory, and that is the greatest act of love possible, to show you the glory of Jesus. So here again, we need perspective. We need our understanding our perspective elevated we're on the ground floor we're in the midst of pain and suffering and trials and hard circumstances we need to be elevated and see from god's perspective this is what's happening in these delays this is by the way a four-day delay for mary and martha for some of you in this room that might seem like the easiest delay possible a four-day delay i could do that maybe some of you in this room it's been a 40-year delay But what this passage is telling us is that all of these delays, whatever you're going through from the beginning, from the start of your trial to the end of your trial, that's the delay. I want this done. I want this gone. God, take care of this. Remove this. I'm done with this pain. Whatever delay you're in, what this passage is telling us is it's not a delay of negligence. It's a delay of love. These moments are delays of love that God is allowing you to go through because he loves you, not in spite of his love. He's not asking, just trust that I love you, even though it doesn't feel like it, just trust it. And I don't really know even if I do, but I'll bring something good out of it. 
He's saying, I love you. And I'm delaying because I love you. This should change the way we pray, right? In the midst of trials, we typically pray, relief. God, please take this away. Relief. It's not wrong to pray that. I think it's better to pray, God, please let me see your love. I know you're loving me in this. Please let me know it. Let me see it and let me see your glory because you're trying to do something here at great cost to me that is showing me glory. I want to see it. Kent Hughes says it this way. A rather lengthy quote, but I think it's important for us. From the ground level, it appears to us that even though we are Christ's children and we love him, he doesn't care about us anymore. We need to be honest and say that that's a human feeling, and that's okay. Our Savior said that. Why have you forsaken me? Do you care about me anymore? You're gone. Why have you forsaken? So let's not be a church that would say, oh, God hasn't left you. God hasn't, he doesn't stop his love for you. He cares about you, and you should not say those words. No. When you hear somebody say, it just feels like God doesn't care anymore, put your arm around them, say, I understand and your Savior understands. Love them. At times, humanly speaking, our circumstances seem to admit no other interpretation than that God doesn't care anymore. Think about Joseph. Sold by his brothers into slavery. He ended up in Potiphar's household, and by hard work, integrity, and devotion, he rose to the top only to be toppled because he would not compromise himself with Mrs. Potiphar. As a result... He ended up in a foul Egyptian jail, and from the ground level, it appeared that God had forsaken him. Joseph had honored God as a young man, but it seemed God didn't care about him any longer. When a child dies in his mother's arms, as she cries to God for help, and the ambulance lies stalled two blocks away, we wonder if God cares. When a Christian is falsely accused and pleads with God to bring the evidence to clear him, and it's only after his reputation is ruined and the evidence comes, we wonder if God cares. When we plan some great event for God and the whole thing falls through, we wonder if God cares. We must be honest and admit that at ground level, there are times when it is very difficult to keep believing in the goodness of God. Can we say a hearty amen to that? It is hard in those moments to trust in the goodness of God. And that's why John 11 is written. John 11 is written to tell us, no, 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 the delay that you're experiencing, whether it's four days, 40 days, 40 years, the delay is not in spite of love. It's because of love. It's because of love. So he stays in verse 6, two days. He lets Lazarus die. And then, verse 7, after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Now let's go. The disciples struggle with that statement. Verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you. And you're going to go there again? The reference to stoning probably goes back to John 10, verse 31. We studied that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus claims to be one with God. I and the Father are one, and they pick up stones to stone him. But there's other times that Jesus' uh, Jesus's life was in danger. He's a wanted man. And so the disciples ask, why are we going back? Back into the hornet's nest. What are you thinking? By the way, 
Jesus could have healed Lazarus from a distance, right? We know that he did that on several occasions. Just say the word, he's healed. Could have done the same thing with raising him from the dead. Could have raised him from the dead from a distance. Why does he say, now we need to go back? Because the disciples need to see the glory of God on display. They need to see it with their eyes. They can't just hear of it. They'll go, oh, that's great. But they need to see this. They need to see and savor the glory of God, as do we. John 9, Jesus answers and he says a seemingly strange statement. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Uh, they, they didn't have watches. They didn't even have minutes. You know, minute wasn't even a word back then. Um, it came much later. They just had hours, chunks of the day, and it was pretty much uh, sun up to sundown divided into 12 periods. And those were their hours. So he says, in the middle of the day, if anyone walks in the day, he's not going to stumble. He can see because of the light. But, verse 10, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. So what he's saying, this is actually very similar. Go back just really quickly to John 9, verse 4. Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So day, night, what is he referring to? The disciples are terrified that if we go back to Jerusalem, we go back to Bethany, which is uh, about less than two miles away from Jerusalem. We go back to Bethany. There's going to be people there that want you dead. You're going to die. And Jesus says, as long as it's day, as long as it's still the day of my ministry, of me doing the Father's work, we won't stumble. Nothing can happen to us. Nobody can kill me and nobody can kill you. When it's nighttime, when I have done everything that the Father has sent me to do, night will come. And then the shepherd will be struck, the sheep will scatter, and all of hell will do its worst against me. And that's night. But it's not night yet. So guys, don't be afraid. That's what he's telling them. Don't be afraid. It's still daylight. I can't stumble. You can't stumble. We're still in the will of God. In this day, doing the will of the Father, we will be fine. You have the light of the world with you. You'll be fine. So he says, verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Now, you have to be a little bit grammatical here. Pronouns, grammar, very important here. He says, our friend, plural, our friend. Lazarus is our friend, and he's fallen asleep. But I go. Well, the disciples are going too, right? They are. But he's singular, I go, to awaken him out of sleep. What he's saying is, John gives us a huge contrast that Jesus is saying. We all love him, but you can't do anything about it. I can. So we're going to go together, but you're going not to help me do anything, you're going to go to watch me do everything. You're going to go to see the glory of God on display. The disciples hear Jesus say he's only fallen asleep, and they say, great, he needs to get some sleep. That's what I told my daughter before I left today. She's sick, and I said, get some sleep. Make sure you don't go crazy. Go to bed. Get some sleep. All of us wish that we were like you right now, not the sick, but the sleep. Get some sleep. And they hear, great, if Lazarus is sleeping, then he'll get better. Jesus says, no. Verse 12, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. And Jesus had spoken of his death. Why does Jesus speak of death as sleep? Jesus did this as well in Mark chapter 5, verse 39. When Jairus' daughter had died, 
He walks in. The funeral procession is happening. He walks in and he says, don't, don't weep. She's not dead. She's asleep. That's a very strange statement. Again, almost like what he said in verse 4, this sickness isn't unto death. No, he is going to die. No, Jairus' daughter is not sleeping. Why do you say she's sleeping and not dead? Here's why. Because for Jesus, to raise somebody from the dead is as easy as just waking somebody up from sleep. To raise somebody from the dead is as easy as waking somebody. Just wake up, come on. That's what he does in Mark chapter 5, verse 39. He goes to Jairus' daughter and he says, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic for little girl, precious little girl, get up. Not, come on, let's go, let's go. It's a very endearing statement. Little girl, get up. It's time to get up. He just wakes her out of sleep. By the way, that's exactly what Jesus is going to say next week. He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, will never die. Or in John chapter 6, you will never taste death. You'll never even taste it. You have eternal life, therefore it never ends. It can never end. So, Jesus says, verse 13, He had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. I was glad. That, that word, you could translate that, I rejoice. I rejoice that he died and I wasn't there. There are very few times, surprisingly fewer times than you would think in the Gospels where Jesus says, I rejoice. And this is one of them. Why does he rejoice? He rejoices because the disciples will now see such a manifestation of the glory of God as will kindle their faith. They're, they're going to see something beyond their wildest dreams. And Jesus is glad because this is now an occasion for the disciples' faith to be strengthened by the revealing of the glory of God. And notice how he says it. I'm glad for your sakes, verse 15, that I was not there so that you may believe. Before that, in parentheses, so that you may see the glory of God and believe. Belief is the human counterpart to seeing the glory of God. God shows us his glory, and if you see it rightly, you will believe. That's why showing the glory of God is the most loving thing God can do, because if you see it rightly, you'll believe. And if you continue to see it rightly more and more, time and time again, you'll believe more and more. Belief in the Gospel of John, we know this. This is a huge issue uh, used uh, almost a hundred times in the Gospel of John to believe. Uh, he's, he's contrasting saving belief versus unsaving belief. Many people believe in an unsaving way. And so Jesus says, belief, John chapter 6, verse 35, is coming to me to be satisfied. Whoever's thirsty, come. Whoever's hungry, come and be satisfied in my glory. This is what the entire universe is all about. Psalm 19, the glory of God is being revealed by the heavens. They declare, they shout forth the glory of God. This is why our mission statement is to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory. Why don't we say magnify God by spreading a passion for his love? Why do we... Most people in church today would say that the love of God is the greatest attribute. So why don't we just say the love of God? Why don't we magnify God by spreading passion for his love? I would take my definition here from John 11 because the greatest love that can be given is to show forth the glory of God. It's the most loving thing that can happen. So we want to spread a passion for the glory of God. We want to spread a passion for his glory. 
Jesus lets Lazarus die and his death does not contradict his love. You have two places to go when you're in this moment. You can go to bitterness or you can go to basking in glory. You can go to bitterness in the midst of despair. God, why did you take that away? Or why are you letting me go through this? Or you can go to, God, I don't understand, but I know there's glory to be seen. Show me glory. Show me glory. Thomas is struggling. Verse 16, after Jesus says, let's go. Let's go to Lazarus. Very interesting statement because Jesus just said plainly, Lazarus died, but let's go to him. Well, why do we go now? Thomas, poor guy, gets a bad rap in scripture. He's called Didymus. Didymus means twin, so he's a twin. And he said to his disciples, let us go also so that we may die with him. There's a lot of ways we can take this, and we don't have the emotion in this. So if you read it, well, let's go. We're going to die with him. It's more sarcastic. But let's, poor, poor dude gets a bad rap. Let's just give him one here. I call him a, a courageous pessimist. He says, let's follow our master. We'll probably die too, but let's follow him. Let's follow him. And so they go. They go. It's a day's journey. They're going to go to Bethany and you do know the rest of the story, but we need to stop there, not, not just because of time. We need to stop there because we need to let the truth of this day sink in. Four days, Lazarus is going to be in the tomb. So how do we wrap this all up? I want to conclude with three, three implications for our heart. Number one, we need to learn to trust and to treasure. Trust and treasure. Mary and Martha didn't know that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus. They didn't know that. They stood in between the death of Lazarus and the glory of God being revealed, not knowing what Jesus was up to. This is, this is a very difficult place for them to live in. So my plea to you today is if you are here and you stand between the loss of something, you're in the hurt and you stand in that delay of love, don't give up. Trust God and treasure his glory and don't give up. Don't give up. God is doing so much more than you could possibly know. So please don't give up. Jesus doesn't mainly love us in this life by sparing us from suffering. He does that sometimes, but not mainly. He loves us mainly by giving us more of himself and more of his glory even at cost to ourselves. So please don't measure the love that God has for you based on how much health or comfort or prosperity or how well things are going for you. Don't measure your love by that. Measure your love, measure the love that God has for you by how much of himself he is showing to you and he is giving to you. That's how the Bible defines love. I I don't want to be telling you anything that the Bible doesn't say. So I want to ask the Bible What does it mean to be loved by God? This is what I prayed earlier. I I want you to feel loved by God. So how are you loved? What does the Bible say true love is? You know it. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So the gift of his son to give you eternal life is the love of God. But let's define that. Turn to John 17. 
How does Jesus define eternal life? Eternal life is love. Giving us the gift of eternal life is love. But how does John define that? How does Jesus define eternal life? Verse 17, John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the greatest gift that God gave us is eternal life through Jesus Christ. But eternal life defined, the greatest gift God gave us, John 17, 3, is knowledge of himself, to know God, to know Jesus. This is, this is the beauty of heaven. The blessing of glory is being in a place where you get to know more and more and bask more and more in the glory of God. Heaven, C.S. Lewis describes heaven as a place where you just keep going further up and further in. You remember that phrase from Chronicles of Narnia? Just further up and further in. Just when you get to a peak and you think it's the highest, you keep going. I don't know if you guys have ever climbed a mountain before. Um, I remember climbing Half Dome where... Uh, I thought, okay, we're at the peak, right? You just see the top and you start climbing and you're like, we're at the peak. And when you get to that peak, you realize there's a bigger one. And then you go, okay, here we go. And you, you climb up that one. And that's the highest point you can see until you get to that point. And you, oh no, we should just turn back now. Like this is just, it goes on forever. That's what heaven is like. That's what the, the walk with Jesus in this life is like to just, okay, I think I've gotten to the depths of the glory of God. And then you just see more and more glory and savor more and more glory. That's why heaven is heaven. It's endless glory. It's knowing God fully. Heaven isn't eternal football or eternal golf. It's such a slap in the face to what heaven really is. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing Christ. By the way, that's what you and I struggle with in the present We were meant to be satisfied by God's glory. Our souls, infinite, were meant to be satisfied by God infinitely. And so we we take a little taste of who he is and we're satisfied. You've tasted and you've seen. I know that you've tasted of the glory of God and and you're satisfied. And then you walk away and you think, well, there's got to be something else. And you try movies, you try TV, you try books, you try sin, you try anything else to satisfy your soul. And you come up empty. That's why Jesus says he is the living water. Going back to Jeremiah 2, the fountains of living water that are given for us, you can either go there and be satisfied or you can go to the broken cisterns that hold no water. So how does the Bible define love? It's the gift of God as given through Jesus Christ, the gift of eternal life. But how is eternal life defined? It's defined in John 17, 3 as knowing God and knowing Christ. One last passage, John 14. Turn here and we'll be done. John 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Okay, how is the Father going to love him? And I will love him. How will Jesus love? What is love, biblically speaking? I will disclose myself to him. Your Bible might say manifest myself to him. When Jesus loves somebody, Jesus gives more of himself to that person. When Jesus loves somebody, he gives more of himself. He shows more of himself. He gives more glory. He shows more glory. 
That's why when Jesus says, I'm going to wait and let Lazarus die, he's doing so because he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and the disciples, and everybody else who's going to see that, including us tomorrow, or next week, including us. He loves us. So, number one, trust and treasure that. Trust God's love for you in the midst of pain and treasure his glory. We need to see and savor that. Have a divine perspective in the midst of your trials and suffering. Don't have an earthly human perspective. Say with the psalmist in Psalm 63, your loving kindness for me, giving yourself for me is better than life. I love you. Number two, really quickly, love is doing whatever you can do to help others see and savor the glory of God. So if the most loving thing God can do for you is to show you the glory of God, then the most loving thing you can do for others is to show them the glory of God. That's the most loving thing you can do. So specifically as we enter into Thanksgiving on Thursday, and you'll be with family members, some of which might not be saved. Maybe you have co-workers that you'll see tomorrow. Maybe you have neighbors that you'll see throughout the week. The most loving thing that you can do for them, biblically speaking, is show them the glory of God. Manifest the glory of God in so many different ways through love, grace, kindness, compassion, acts of service. Finally, number three, the ultimate delay of love. The ultimate delay of love. We're in the middle when the trial begins and the trial ends. That moment is a moment of delay but it's the delay of love. The ultimate delay of love, biblically, is the cross. Jesus in the garden said, take this cup, let's be done with this, there's got to be another way. But for the joy set before him, he obeyed. And in that delay, it wasn't a delay because God the Father did not love his son. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So the Father kept silent and let him go through that delay of love. Why? Philippians 2 says that in the end, God will highly exalt him. God did that when he ascended into heaven. He highly exalted him, given the name above all names, so that we would bow and worship him. Why else? Hebrews chapter 1, so that he would bring you and me to glory. In the delay of love that is seen in the garden and the cross, that delay of love should shatter all of our paradigms in our delays of love that somehow God doesn't love us. God proved his love once and for all through Jesus. So in whatever pain or suffering or trial you're going through, see it as a delay of love. Trust and treasure that God is doing something. He's working an eternal weight of glory for you far beyond any comprehension. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for this definition of love. Thank you for the Bible being so abundantly clear. Oh, the world has its many definitions of love. They're so confused, even in their own definitions. But you are clear what love looks like, what love is. And so I pray that we would come now and see and savor the love of God for us, deep, unmeasured, boundless, free, poured out, even in the delays of love that we go through. God, be our comfort Be our refuge as we have sung this morning. May we trust and treasure you now. Oh, the deep.